On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Peter C. Earle, economist at AIR, to discuss FTX, SBF, altruism, virtue signaling, ESG, CBDC, and the thread that weaves all of them together. Pete is someone whose perspective you really want to hear on these topics. A former Wall Street guy, he spent over 20 years as a trader and analyst at a number of securities firms and hedge funds in the New York metropolitan area. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to check it out wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe to our new YouTube channel here. So you're growing up, your parents are distinguished professors at Stanford Law School. Um, were you interested in the law at any point or not? Not at all growing up. I think I've become more interested in it recently. All right. So um, FTX, SBF, everybody's been talking about this. You know, people have covered all kinds of aspects of this whole fiasco. But one of the things that you wrote about was something that I haven't really seen discussed before. And that's the fact that um, FTX or SBF, you know, uh, were under investigation uh, months before the collapse of FTX. So can you discuss the details of that? Uh, sure. So uh, the Wall Street Journal reported on November 9th that FTX um, had been under investigation by both the SEC, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, and um, the uh, U.S. Department of Justice since the summer of 2022. Uh, news is coming out now about it. We, what we do know is that uh, they were being investigated for possible violations of the Bank Secrecy Act, which charges companies located in the United States um, to detect and to deter uh, money laundering. But it's not clear right now either how that wound up or if that investigation was over or if that'll be picked up now or, or what. But we do know that, uh, you know, for at least six months, they had been under investigation already by certain U.S. government uh, uh, agencies. Hmm. So my question is, why would somebody who's under investigation by the SEC be invited to talk to the SEC about regulations for crypto? Well, there's a few things there. And the first is that um, uh, the idea that one particular government official agency knows what the others are up to doesn't really wash. I mean, uh, the government is, the U.S. government is massive and it's spread out. And uh, there are probably also prohibitions on uh, releasing information about an investigation or something like that because so, – so I would just chalk it up to uh, bureaucratic frictions, that sort of thing. I certainly think there are times in the past where we've had uh, different wings of the government or different arms of the U.S. government working at opposite ends at the same time. Okay. Okay. So you think that it was just basically, you know, the government being bloated and ineffective? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, be always, yeah. <laughs> well, that is always true, right? That is always true behind everything. That's sure. always there. And sometimes people think, well, everything mm -hmm. has been planned out and everything is kind of a conspiracy, but maybe some of it is people who just are, are really inefficient or organizations or governments that are so huge that they're just inefficient. Yeah, I mean, I, I never chalk up to conspiracy, which you can attribute to just incompetence and you know, bureaucratic um, uh, inertia. So, but there is also the fact that the SEC uh, chairman, uh, Gary Ginsler, uh, he was a professor at MIT, and he also happened to be friends with Caroline Ellison, Alameda's uh, CEO, her father, who's also a prof at MIT. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be also this kind of uh, circular connections there between everybody who's involved in Alameda and FTX. So do you think yeah. that that could be part of it too? 
I definitely think connections, uh, which happens among all rungs of elites when you're talking about the uh, the Northeastern sort of uh, Ivy League connections and all that, I certainly think that plays a role um, as to whether everybody was in on what eventually was, what FTX was eventually exposed as having, having done, I doubt it. But certainly doors were opened and relationships were were explored on the basis of relationships. But again, I think that has to do with that, that, that you're going to find that in any sort of elite connections between, say, uh, Washington, D.C. and Wall Street and high tech and all, all these different uh, spheres of influence. Yeah. Um, so it just seems to be kind of par for the course there, right? Uh, yes. Um, so I know that there were people who were saying, uh, to your point, that people working for FTX actually had no idea that any of this was going on, but that Alameda knew everything that was going on at FTX. So it looked like, you know, that back door that people talk about that was created was a one-sided mm-hmm. uh, a one-sided window that was looking in, but that other people at FTX didn't actually know what was going on. Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, yeah, I mean, the fact that, that, that customer funds were used either um, in Alameda investments or to meet margin calls and, and all that sort of thing suggests that really FTX was being run for the benefit of Alameda and not the other way around. So it stands to reason that, uh, that um, a handful of people in the, uh, in the research uh, organization uh, would have known what was going on and the vast majority of the other 600 employees who are working at FTX had no idea. You know, I think, I, I don't, I, this is pure speculation on my part, but I think we may find out eventually that there were either two sets of books or maybe two um, two different uh, uh, um, displays of, say, customer account information or something like that to keep um, the vast majority of people on the FTX side in the dark. But that's, that's just my own experience in uh, watching scams like this unfold. That may not be the case. Yeah. Um, so are there any kind of scams that have unfolded in the past uh, that you can draw a parallel to? Yeah, definitely MF Global. Um, people people have, have cited uh, 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 Lehman Brothers, uh, the collapse in 2008, and Enron, but I think uh, more close parallel, parallels exist between MF Global um, because MF Global was a case where um, a proprietary trading desk was allegedly using customer funds to meet margin calls. So major banking scandal here in the United States. Former New Jersey Governor and U.S. Senator John Corzine testified Tuesday on Capitol Hill about his brief stint at the helm of the failed commodities and derivatives brokerage house, MF Global. Corzine resigned from the firm last month after it filed for one of the largest bankruptcies in American corporate history, with almost $40 billion in liabilities. It was the largest failure on Wall Street since the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008. After MF Global went bankrupt on Halloween, regulators discovered up to $1.2 billion in customer funds that should have been kept segregated were missing. Last week, Corzine told the Congressional Committee that he never directed anyone at MF Global to misuse customer funds. And uh, that's what we have here is we have customer funds, which are supposed to be um, segregated and kept separate from each other. They're not supposed to be commingled with firm funds. Uh, we're being used in that regard. So I think it's an MF Global thing. Um, one of my great mentors on Wall Street says he sees elements of Madoff, not in that this was a Ponzi scheme, but rather that in personal relationships were sort of brought into it to bring investors in, make people 
people uh, on some level think they were getting in on something special. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I have to cite because it was real rent when I came into crypto, uh, Mount Gox, just because it involved, you know, a, a crypto exchange of sorts. So MF Global uh, with a side of Mt. Gox and a dash of the uh, Madoff elements, I would say. That's where I would say FTX uh, falls, something like that. So do you think that Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, in your opinion, is he is he really this altruist? Is he a good guy who just made mistakes? You know, a lot of people now, they're chalking it up to the fact that he was just a kid, you know, even though he was 30, you know, and he was, he was young and inexperienced, and he just made a bunch of mistakes. Like, what would you guys do if you were living in this kind of fraternity with people, and you decided to, to start this new thing, and it just went awry? Like, you can't blame him too much. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, nobody was thinking that when they handed him billions of dollars. Uh, it's a very easy uh, thing to slide back to. And, you know, we've seen this, side of, this sort of thing a few times now. There seems to be a persona uh, sort of uh, growing, uh, uh, maybe you could call it an archetype of, uh, of, uh, of sorts, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, um, a handful of others. It's like the young wunderkind, right, the young geek who's socially awkward, but they're really a genius, and somehow they, 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 they are, they're very effective not only at, um, at parting people with their money, but also just in misrepresenting themselves. We are the only lab company that is actually really focused on leading with transparency. So uh, I think, uh, I mean, unfortunately we may see more of these, but I, um, I think that's uh, uh, saying, you know, I'm just a kid or whatever, or I had no experience with this, you know, that's um, shame on investors if that's true. But I mean, I think we all know by now uh, from what some statements SBF has made and from uh, what we're learning that um, there was more at work than simple uh, simple naivete. Yeah, there was that exchange with a Vox reporter that I'm sure you've seen. Uh, have you seen it? Where... Right. So SBF basically said, hey, well, you know, I just you do all of these things because uh, us Western woke woke Westerners, you know, we love to do these kinds of things, you know, say the right shibboleths and then people will will like us. Yeah. Yeah. He said he said this is all part of a dumb game. And that's a quote. Uh, he said with that Vox report, he said it's part of a dumb game. And he said that, uh, you know, um, in, and I mean, it's just, it, it stands to reason. I mean, people respond to incentives. And so if the incentives are aligned, if, if incentives are, are aligned with, you know, meeting a certain definition of political wokeness or or espousing certain views, people are going to do that, uh, whether or not they're sincere about them, because the rewards are, are, are very high. The rewards are huge. So you wrote, actually, uh, about the effective altruism thing in SPF. It is impossible to square effective altruism with the surreptitious use of customer funds to cover costs and losses associated with personal high-risk trading and investing activities. So that pretty much sums up what we were just discussing. But what I would like to know is, why is it that that people like SPF, they say one thing and then they behave differently. What kind of advantages is there to, to doing that? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, wealth has a stigma, um, which is extraordinarily strange in a nation, uh, or it, it, whether it's in the U.S. or Canada or Western Europe, it's extraordinarily strange that being wealthy would have a negative stigma um, in these places where markets and commerce have had such a, an extraordinary impact on improving lives and raising standards of living. But, um, you know, a lot of times they'll espouse these views, they'll, they'll, they'll express these woke views to defuse criticism or preempt accusations of greed, but also, you know, as we're seeing right 
right now with, especially with, um, with the way that ESG has come to be sort of administered by large funds that control funding um, as sort of a litmus test. Um, yeah, the incentives are in line for, for individuals and for firms to sort of uh, nuzzle up to these regulatory agencies or these standards and uh, attempt to, uh, to uh, cull favor by, uh, by adhering to them. That makes a lot of sense, actually. So part of it is maybe the the kind of corporate uh, pressure where they feel like, you know, they have to say these things to be part of that corporate world. Am I understanding that correctly? We are talking about the substantial shift which is taking place, which is the transition of an economy which is more based on shareholders' uh, value to an economy which is more based on stakeholder responsibility. And uh, the the, uh, metrics are uh, walking the talk. What I'm particularly proud of uh, in in the case of um, the development of those ESG metrics is that the initiative came from business, from our 100 plus uh, CEOs. It was not something, um, let's say, imposed on business, Uh, business itself took on the responsibility to to define how uh, could the um, reporting process and the measuring process and the reporting process structured in a way uh, which gives better better impression uh, to stakeholder responsibility. I mean, that's true, but also there are large asset managers right now, one of which is BlackRock and there are others, that are slowly but surely beginning to tie inclusion in indices and, um, you know, investment banks may tie funding or like the level of interest uh, associated with a bond on how well firms comply with the, with these mandates. So all of it really comes down to uh, fitting, uh, fitting uh, uh, firms and individuals into this sort of uh, uh, – Cookie cutter of uh, of acceptable views, and then tying their survival, uh, their t- their 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 access to funding, or even their survival to uh, to compliance with them. It's strange to me, though, because Pete, like I don't I don't see this as things that people actually want to hear. But maybe I'm wrong. Is that what the public wants? Like, do they want to hear this kind of virtue signaling? I, I think some do. Certainly, some do. Otherwise, I mean, there's a certainly dif- disconnect between. Public, public and elites, but I think that um, I think it's safe to say that many large firms wouldn't be receiving the kind of money they are um, if there wasn't some sort of a uh, if it wasn't viewed as 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 safe and acceptable. I think uh, outliers, people with views that don't uh, conform to these, and part of it has to do with the political environment, um, are viewed as either high risk or that they should be you know sort of beaten into uh, into compliance, beaten not beaten into submission really, but uh, but um, shown the the error of their ways, if you will. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not really uncomfortable having uh, iconoclastic views, <laughs> but uh, but but to be sure, um, if I wanted to raise two billion dollars for a hedge fund or something like that, um, it might not be possible, you know, with the kind of views I have. Or, and many people can say that. Certainly not just me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, play ball. Play ball. That's it. Well, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was yep. certainly playing ball. Uh, you spoke about that in the mm-hmm. essay that I'm going to link below. Um, you wrote, a nearly identical version of this sleight of hand has been going on in the rapidly expanding influence of the purveyors of environmental, social, and governance, ESG philosophies. There is as well a direct connection between SBF and ESG. The FTX Foundation 
acting as the major conduit of his effective altruism, donations, the list of supported causes offers few surprises. So can you tell us what some of those things are? What kind of hypocrisies and contradictions are taking place in the world of ESG? Sure. So ESG contemplates a stakeholder rather than a shareholder-focused management philosophy. So that rather than orienting a company's uh, management and executive philosophy toward um, meeting customer needs and producing revenue, which rewards shareholders, there's an idea that the company exists not only for shareholders, but for the local community and suppliers and activists and really any, any entity which it could be argued is impacted by the company. Now, you can already see the slippery slope there. I mean, if you have, say, Amazon or Walmart, it's hard to argue that any part of the world isn't affected by that. But it's difficult uh, with ESG, you know, it's difficult to make money. I mean, as it is, markets are very competitive. Um, but when you have these huge lists of requirements to meet, all of which consume capital and time and distract from the business of doing business, uh, it becomes very difficult to do business. Now, um, one element of ESG, a, prof a pr pretty profound element of the platform, is aversion to all things hydrocarbon. So carbon footprints, anything that involves fossil fuels and that sort of thing is viewed as anathema. So, um, but there are these ESG funds out there. I've mentioned some of these uh, mutual funds or ETFs, and you'll find oil and gas stocks in these funds. And uh, there's all sorts of uh, excuse making. They say, well, you know, this oil company has a small division that's looking at alternative energy. Okay. So, I mean, that, you know, Chevron is actually the fourth largest constituent of one particular ESG fund. Um, and then it's all on the same level as these celebrities, mostly actors, who fly around the world in private jets and tell me that I should lower my, uh, my, uh, my heat in the wintertime by five degrees, that sort of thing. Or, um, you know, two funds will have, uh, another example of what I was saying about the funds is two funds will have essentially the same portfolio, but they'll change the allocation of Apple from, say, 9% to 7% in, in the, ESG compliant portfolio. And I mean, if anybody thinks that changing the weighting of Apple by 2% is going to save the world, um, I, I I don't know what else they could be convinced of. It's frightening. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, we've actually seen <laughs> in action when you have countries like Sri Lanka who completely collapse <laughs> because they are so yep. ESG compliant. They just went full force. They went right into it. And look what happened to their country. Look what happened to their people. Starvation, poverty, uh, you know, uh, a revolt. This is the end of the road, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the Sri Lankan situation is very complicated, uh, but ultimately what it did was um, it resulted in political decisions that were made to buy time and that were compliant with ESG and that uh, essentially resulted in the destruction of the country. I mean, a country that was almost that, – that, that I think something like 80 percent of the citizens relied on their and their neighbors' production of agriculture to survive has seen uh, – destruction on par with anything we've seen during wars or uh, natural disasters. So uh, it's a new weapon of mass destruction, and it's one that uh, is not just uh, accepted, it's encouraged yeah. by certain entities or institutions. Yeah and, yeah, and I mean, we see Sri Lanka and we see them abiding by this, uh, this way of doing things, ESG and everything else. But, you know, maybe think this can never happen in the U.S. Like it will never go to that level. It will never be completed in the same way. Like, do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do have some thoughts on that. I don't think uh, for any number of reasons that we could see what happened in Sri Lanka happen in the U.S. Or I will say this. 
even if we don't have the sort of fallout that occurred in Sri Lanka and is occurring elsewhere in the U.S., you know, even if we just slow down the growth of the economy by a few percent, and let's say the growth in the equities markets goes from 10 to 12 or 9 to 11 percent per year, let's say that drops to 2 to 4 percent per year, something like that, you know, that that slowing of growth has real costs. It's not just a question of slower growth. It's a question of of slower uh, spreading of productivity and less growth and uh, lower uh, standards of livings and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, my concern is that the detrimental effect, effects of ESG accumulate so slowly that it could be a generation or two before uh, people realize what's happening and that we have all these sort of slow effects, almost like, say, uh, I don't want to be too dramatic, but almost like a, a slow poisoning uh, before people realize what's happening. Because yeah. it can happen with a whimper. It doesn't necessarily have to happen with a bang like it did in Sri Lanka. That makes a lot of sense and probably more likely as well. Um, so what what could that actually right. look like, though, in, let's say, you know, two or three decades or in 50 years, if this, if you have that slow poison? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, because I am a financial guy fundamentally, but this is probably not the biggest thing. First thing that comes to mind is people's inability to say, you know, have investments for their retirement. Um, you would see uh, funds, uh, you would see funds, just, just credit markets and other funds drawn away from uh, areas that have low return. Uh, you'd say less funds for investment. Um, you might see the initial response to such a thing might be um, expansionary monetary policy over a period of time. Uh, policymakers might decide that instead of the 2% we've seen for a long time, that 5% or 8% is the new uh, the new baseline for monetary policy. I mean, it's difficult to grasp all the different ways in which that would manifest. But um, uh, I, I, I definitely think that it doesn't have to blow up overnight for the consequences to be pretty pretty, pretty negative, um, and that uh, there would be knock-on effects and unintended consequences vastly beyond what I could even think of at this point. Yeah. I would have to write a science fiction novel or something. <laughs> so the economy would be worse off eventually, and people would be worse off because, you know, sure. people are the economy in a way. Like, that's how I look at it. Oftentimes, we talk about the economy, and people say, well, you know, the economy is less important than this and this and this and that, always forgetting that the economy is really human activity. Yeah, I mean, that's, that I think is one of the really negative consequences of the explosion of econometrics over time. Um, I mean, it's a great tool for modeling, and it can help uh, make certain economic concepts easier to grasp. But it also convinces people that the economy is a machine. And, you know, that's the thinking that goes into lockdowns, and that's the thinking that goes into things like uh, curves that describe uh, how much taxation you lose when you uh, set the tax, uh, all, all this sort of thing, all these different curves and stuff. What it does is it, encourage a it encourages a perspective that the economy is this uh, is a machine and not an organic um, sort of entity, um, and not an entity that's separate from human beings, but it's a, a product, it's both a, an output and input of human, of and to human beings, human societies. Yeah, um, it's it's very important point uh, to keep in mind, that's that we are part of that whole thing, and it is not a machine, it really is something that's organic, but it gets treated like a machine, right? Mm -hmm. And as, to your point, when you're talking about modeling sure. and these kinds of things, and um, monetary policy, like we've seen that happening uh, already, but now they're talking about CBDCs. And there's already now this 
uh, pilot project uh, for the New York Fed, where they've said basically, oh, we're going to mm -hmm. test this all out. And to me, that sounds very much like viewing the economy and viewing consumers and savers and spenders as cogs in the machine. Yeah, so right now, there's a bunch of governments that are working on creating digital currencies. One of the reasons why the Fed has jumped into it so quickly is because China started this about a year and a half ago with the so-called digital yuan. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's already out there being tested. And the worry is that um, the nation that first comes up with a really effective and functional digital currency um, could seize the position that the U.S. dollar has in terms of being a medium of exchange and a reserve currency and a unit of account in global trades. And so uh, in global trading. And so that's that's the concern. That's why the Fed's trying to catch up. It really doesn't have a lot to do with crypto. It has more to do with uh, with the dollar uh, being the uh, sort of the uh, the reserve currency and, have, and having this great, uh, this exorbitant privilege in the world where we can sort of export inflation and all that sort yeah. of thing. But um, to the extent that a digital currency has two particular characteristics, I think they're frankly pretty dangerous. And I call, there's an article I wrote where I refer to them as weaponized money. The first is that um, if they are cashless, in other words, if the central bank digital currency um, contemplates no more cash, if it's purely digital and every citizen has, say, an account or something like that, and if it has certain features, some certain functionality, which I could talk about, then we're talking about, um, you know, a potentially weaponizable tool of personal financial surveillance and maybe even a financial repression. So um, the nightmare, the nightmare scenario that I see, and it may not be realistic, but just uh, letting my mind uh, sort of fly on uh, um, a, a, a tangent is, if, for example, a central bank digital currency could be engineered to, say, um, inflate faster for one particular person or one particular group of people than others. Uh, there have been concerns uh, in China that the digital yuan could be used to, say, punish people with lower um, social credit scores. I mean, anything like that um, would be really devastating, and it could really turn into a, a tool of you know, real financial oppression. Um, and it also contemplates a sort of a strange way to punish people by making their money um, uh, lose value faster. Now, there would be other reasons to do that. I mean, one thing that, uh, uh, that that functionality could meet is, say, if the government wants to, say, spur consumption, they could, say, digitally ramp up the rate of inflation so people want to spend their money faster and consume more. So that's not just something that could be engineered as a, as, say, a, as, as, as a, in a, in a, to be used in a punitive sense. It could be something that's used for unconventional monetary policy, but it has a darker sort of connotation or a darker application. So these are the things that uh, I was thinking about when I wrote that article and uh, continuing to watch closely. Yeah. Well, this is really funny. The last thing that you mentioned uh, brings me back to the idea of altruism, right? Which is that, well, it would be a good thing for the economy <laughs> that we make people's money expire so that, you know, they... They put their they put their dollars to work, kind of thing. And but what does that do to to people, to individuals who have, you know, they can't save anymore. They have to use their money, otherwise it's going to expire. You know, this it's like the uh, the benevolent uh, dictator kind of model. And and you spoke about um, a historical example sure. of that in Austria in in this in this uh, article that you're talking about. So can you give us that example? 
Silvio Gazelle was a, I was an economist, and uh, out of the Great Depression came a number of ideas for spurring consumption and for avoiding the disaster that had befallen most of the world. And uh, this one uh, economist, Silvio Gazelle, he came up with an idea of money, and, and so it wasn't, it wouldn't, it essentially works like I just described, but it wouldn't be digital. The idea was that once a week or once a month, you would take your money to the local post office or something, and the government would have told the, the post office to use any of a number of stamps to determine how long that money would be valid for. So the government might say, okay, it looks like consumption is dropping. Uh, we're going to make, we're going to stamp all dollar bills with uh, a green stamp. And that means this dollar is only good for another, say, week. So you have to go out and spend it. Now, let's say that goes on for a few weeks and the government determines, well, you know, now actually we have too much spending. We want to, we want to, um, or, or now we've got, uh, we've got, uh, um, uh, plenty of spending or we want to say dial it back um, the next stamp might be blue and that may and that may lead to uh, uh, or say okay now you've got a month or you've got two months to spend this money that sort of thing there's a lot of different wrinkles but that's the basic idea and so my my thought was that you know to uh, to the extent that a digital uh, central bank digital currency had some of that functionality um, it could be uh, a pretty frightening thing that I think is in most people's blind spots I don't think most people are thinking about uh, personally tailored monetary policy when they uh, put their money in the bank or when they uh, you know open up their wallet yeah there's nobody that's used to that there's nobody living who's you know experienced that in the US before right so it's just kind of a foreign concept right um, so do you think then that the idea of CBDCs, uh, do you think that they're kind of a reaction to what crypto was supposed to, do, to be? Um, you, were, you wrote about in the, um, in the article that you wrote about FTX and SBF and ESG, which we spoke about earlier, uh, you talk about the founding mission of crypto or of Bitcoin and how everything that's happened has become kind of a betrayal of that, especially with this FTX crash. But we can also um, associate that with CBDC, how it's kind of a betrayal of the mission, the founding mission of decentralized digital money. Yeah, so two things. First, um, central bank digital currencies have nothing to do with crypto. Um, they are merely meant, they are merely, there's right essentially an arms race right now between governments and the central banks around the world. I have no doubt that at some point, um, if these things were to be rolled out, uh, they would be marketed as a safe alternative or whatever. But the central bank digital currencies are not cryptos, and I don't think they're meant to be. I think uh, this has more to do with uh, trying to re retain uh, or seize, as the case may be, influence in terms of uh, global uh, medium, media of, of exchange. But with respect to Bitcoin, um, the comment that I made in the article was that essentially uh, you have some of these newfangled crypto firms which are espousing all these sort of green ideals and all these uh, progressive uh, shibboleths and 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 um, and platitudes. And really, I mean, in, in the in the 2008 Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, um, the pseudonymous uh, Nakamoto made references to such things as unfettered uh, central banking, avaricious states. And all that, and I think he or or she or they, whoever Nakamoto was, knew that a decentralized, uh, algorithmically constrained, cryptographic, he called an electronic peer-to-peer -peer cash, um, had a lot of attributes that would be that would be attractive to, um, and philosophically uh, aligned with uh, libertarians and also with uh, critics of central banks more broadly, uh, gold bugs, 
um, anybody interested in cr- commodity money standards, the benefits of them, and that sort of thing. So um, I think, if anything, the connection between central bank digital currencies and Bitcoin is that uh, central bank digital currencies, even more than the dollar as it is now, the paper dollar or whatever, um, will be marketed as uh, are, are, are more to arrest uh, the use of, of, of crypto than, uh, than to uh, – um, replace them or, or, or augment them. Um, once, once there's no more cash, however that comes about, yeah. once there's no more cash in any such system, the on-road, the on-ramps and off-ramps rather of crypto uh, become very limited. And from that point on, it becomes a real challenge. So uh, I think that uh, no matter what is said at the current time, I think uh, over the medium to long term, a cashless economy is the goal. And that's, that's an existential threat to cryptocurrencies and to Bitcoin. So do you think that we're going to end up there? Will we, will we be in a world that has no more cash? There are right now some proposals for that. Um, one of them is I think Kenneth Rogoff uh, has said he wants to eliminate everything larger than a $100 bill, which is not a cashless economy, but it makes it difficult to transport a large amount of money, that sort of thing. I think it's the goal. I think it would be difficult to do because, to be honest, I think that if cash were to disappear, I think something would very quickly, I think uh, spontaneous order and all these Hayekian sort of forces would pop up and something would replace it, whether it would be silver, silver coins, whether it would be uh, Cigarettes, like at a POW camp, there's a famous uh, yeah. you know, article written about that. I think some something would come in. The market would uh, would uh, would, would uh, reward some particular good as the new cash. Now that comes with all sorts of problems, and it's not really like money, or, or it's not really like um, cash as we know it today. But I but I have to believe that um, something would pop up. And I also think that the prospects for going to an all cash economy are pretty difficult. I mean, there are still many people who are unbanked. And uh, unless some some means, whether it's post office banks or something from the past, were, were brought together, uh, put together, or brought brought you know into existence, um, I'm not sure how the economy and I'm not sure how uh, how government and, uh, and and banks would deal with uh, suddenly a huge portion of the population. I mean, not huge. It's probably, you know, in the millions or tens of millions, I guess, um, how that many people not having access to banking would be dealt with. Yeah, that's actually a good point to see if it would work in practice. Uh, that is a very good point. But as we right. know, there are definitely ideas and people who are trying very hard to make it happen, Right. So if, if, if we got rid of cash, I mean, the one big benefit from the perspective of governments and central bankers is that um, right now there's always a concern that uh, if, if, if interest rates are dropped down to zero or if, or if they're taking negative in particular, negative interest rates contemplate um, depositors paying interest on their accounts. So if you have a certain amount of money in the bank, instead of receiving interest, you'd be paying to keep your money there. And the worry is, of course, um, that people would just take their money out of their uh, out of bank accounts and such and put them in their mattress. So if there was an all digital currency, one of the benefits is that it would essentially open up that realm of unconventional monetary policy. Um, negative interest rates become a real way of, uh, of influencing uh, the economy. Um, the other thing is if 
uh, there was no cash, if there were no cash, and if um, central banks, uh, or, or rather banking, was uh, was completely digital, um, it would allow regulators and central bankers to keep a very close eye on the movement of money, on things that you pay for, what you do with your money. And again, it would be a fiscal, a personal finance surveillance state. So uh, th- those are viewed as benefits uh, by many central bankers and probably treasury people. But uh, I think uh, the average American would have a different opinion if they understood it. Yes, I think so too. There's nobody who wants to have the government with you everywhere you go. I don't think. Not many, at least. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh my goodness. So one one thing that I've thought of here that kind of connects the dots uh, between, let's say, you know, altruism, virtue signaling, ESG, uh, and FTX mm-hmm. and all of the business that's happened there. Uh, and connects that with the ideas that a CBDC needs to be brought forth is that it looks like the common goal seems to be to have more technocratic control. So ESG for corporations and then CBDC for sure. individuals. What, do you agree? Yeah? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that most uh, government officials and regulators and central bankers see it as sinister. I think they think that uh, the tale of the 19th and 20th centuries have been ones, uh, has been one where uh, governments have become smarter and more able to, there's, there's a greater ability to sort of influence things positively. And they certainly don't agree with ideas like uh, market uh, uh, failures. And they, they see, I'm sure they see a broadening spectrum of public goods. Um, but uh, certainly we've seen the other side of that. And we've seen, you know, the, the loss that comes, the loss of liberty that comes with the growth of the state and uh, uh, that the state that's all things can all people, to all people, and that can give you anything, can take everything. So I, I do think that increasing control is sort of the threat of continuity between all these measures. But I don't think that it's, it's, it's viewed uh, the way one expects, a, say, a Bond villain right. or, a, right. uh, or, 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 or an evil sort of uh, emperor to, to view. I think they think this is just part of um, an improvement of, uh, of, of our daily lot and uh, building on successes, as it yes. were. Yes. <laughs> well, well, if you think that you have all of these great solutions and you really believe in that and you think that it will be helpful and people will be better off, then, of course, you're not going to see this as a bad thing, right? But people on the receiving end of that. Let's be very happy that in, let's be very happy that in the mid-1990s, as was proposed, the U.S. Postal Service didn't get in charge of email. We deliver, we deliver. Speed, convenience, price. It's a package only we can deliver. Express mail from your postal service. We deliver for you. Oh my goodness. So what what would that have been? What would that have looked sure, like? Because that was proposed, and it seemed like a logical, yeah, it seemed like a logical, you know, expansion of their jurisdiction and all that sort of thing. And uh, thankfully, it was laughed off the desk or laughed off the shelf as quickly as it was suggested. But I mean, that's the kind of thing that many people would say makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't the postal service be in charge of uh, of emails? And by now we would paying we'd be paying two dollars an email, which would get expensive. But then again, we might not be getting uh, all these spam messages. So. Oh yeah, cost and cost and benefits, so, right? So you yeah, think that they would be efficient? Then is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I don't. I think it would be no. I think the cost would have risen faster than the cost of stamps, and there would be censorship, and there'd be reading our email, and. Uh, 
what people complain about Google, you know, sending targeted ads based upon what's in your email would be vastly worse. It would be many, many times worse. No, I'm not in any way advocating for that. Yeah, yeah, no, I did not think so. I did not think so. So, <laughs> so if I can ask you kind of one last question here to kind of tie all of this together, you know, you've, sure. you've given a great critique of all of these mm -hmm. things. Um, and well thought out. And I, I definitely suggest people go and read your work at AIR.org as well. Read these two articles. I'll post them below. But what what is the way forward? Like, what would be a better way forward? Let's say in a perfect world, you know, if, if I could ask you, what do you think would be the best kind of way to do things? What would it be? Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen is we need, uh, at a very fundamental level, um, People need to reassess the relationship between human beings and the state. And, and I would say and, and recognize that uh, the nation state is not necessarily the best delivery vehicle for all the things we want. And also that uh, not getting perfect outcomes doesn't mean that a mistake has necessarily been made, by which I mean um, companies uh, are, are well equipped to, to deliver a lot of the things that we want in terms of goods and services, in terms of uh, a growing array of, uh, of uh, things to consume and things to use and all that sort of thing. And so uh, I, uh, I think that uh, you know, the way forward is to uh, ask the tough questions about what the real role of the government should be and also ask how we got here. You know, I mean, we, we, in the last hundred years, the size, of, the size and influence of, of governments has become you know, uh, incalculably larger. And so, you know, I think people would do well to ask, like, you know, if, if this was all essential, how did we make it until, say, 1895 or 1920? How did we ever survive without these things? And the answer is, you know, we got pretty good at figuring things out, and people took care of themselves, and communities took care of themselves, and uh, uh, just um, looking back and, and figuring out how we got here um, without this massive sort of state and all these massively interventionist policies and central banking and public schooling and all these other things, which are really new experiments. These things haven't been around forever. Um, asking those questions, um, I think, could be a fruitful exercise. Yeah, that was very great. Do you have any last thoughts, Pete? Anything else that you'd like to add before, before you go? Three things that... I think we're all waiting to find out about the whole FTX thing. The first is where did the money go? There's still a lot of money. There's billions of dollars missing. Where did it go? How was it lost? Where was it stashed? That's the first thing. Mm. The second is what role, what role if any, um, since we're finding out this, did SBF's parents, who are law professors, and I, and I think uh, I, I believe they had some role with the um, Democratic Party. Maybe not. I may be wrong, but that would yes. be interesting. And then finally, I am very interested in hearing the f a full accounting of what FTX's uh, interaction or, or engagement with Ukraine was. Um, in terms of sending crypto, in terms of business dealings, I think that would be extraordinarily interesting. And uh, I, I, I've said since, uh, since uh, FTX filed for bankruptcy, this is going to be one hell of a book. I can't wait to read it. Going to have to wait a few years, but uh, it will be one. It'll, it'll be a book I'll be first in line for. This is going to be a good one. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it might be difficult to find because I don't know if you've seen, but there were certain things um, that were expensed in the form of emojis, things like that. Um, you know. Yes, that's my, my that's my so far my favorite anecdote <laughs> is that if you wanted to say get uh, twenty five, let's say you wanted seventy five thousand dollars for payroll, you would post that in a uh, in a chat thread and you would get shoe pumpkin. 
uh, smiley face star, uh, and that would apparently be five different executives signing off on your request. So uh, that's, I mean, hopefully there'll be, I mean, the book I want to read has an addendum, which gives the significance of every emoji, but that may be hoping upon yes, hopes. We'll yes, see. I don't know if we'll, we'll find see. out what they all mean, but, but maybe we can hope. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man, right, right, thank right. you so much. This has been so great, Pete. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I, I love having you on you here. You are more than yeah. welcome. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Okay.